to season two of Much Language, Such Talk. Now that we're back, you can expect new episodes every other Thursday again. Isn't that exciting? We are very happy that you have decided to tune in for today's episode, and we already have fantastic topics and guests lined up for the next few weeks. So make sure to follow us on social media or sign up to our newsletter on our website, mlsdpodcast.com, to never miss an episode again. So today, you're hearing from me, Eva Maria, and I'm joined by my co-host, Maria. Hi, Maria. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Nice to be back. Nice to be back indeed. So for our first episode back after our summer break, we have chosen a super interesting topic that not too many people are familiar with. We are going to talk about forensic linguistics. Now, before I introduce our wonderful guest, this episode contains mentions of rape, sexual offenses, and pedophilia. We acknowledge that these are highly sensitive topics, so we would advise you to not continue with this episode if these topics are too confronting for you. Today's guest is Dr. Nikki McLeod. And she's a senior lecturer in English language and linguistics at Northumbria University. She got her PhD from Aston University in Birmingham, where she conducted discourse analysis on police interviews with women reporting rape. Until 2018, she was employed as a research associate at the Aston Institute for Forensic Linguistics, working on various projects focusing on authorship analysis, native language identification, and assuming identities online in the context of undercover investigations against child sex offenders. She is co-author of the book Language and Online Identities, the Undercover Policing of Internet Sexual Crime, which we will be talking about on this episode as well. Nikki also works as a self-employed forensic linguist outside of academia, applying her academic background to criminal cases. For this, she undertakes casework in the areas of authorship analysis, sociolinguistic profiling, and forensic discourse analysis. She's also part of the National Crime Agency Expert Advisor Database. On top of that, she has worked with the Serious Organized Crime Squad, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the UK Police Forces, and Defence Solicitors, and she has appeared as expert witness in the Crown Court of England and Wales, and both the Sheriff Court and the High Court of Justiciary in Scotland. Her current research interests lie in discursive patterns of representation and negotiation, particularly in legal and investigative contexts, the language of policing and the language of violence. So from this intro, you can tell that this episode will show you a completely different side of linguistics you might have not heard about before. And some of you might have not even considered the importance of this field. But Maria and I are very excited to have Nikki on the podcast so we can learn about what forensic linguistics is and what this work entails. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for coming. You're welcome. To begin with, we wanted to ask, like, how did you develop your interest in linguistics before forensic linguistics? I think I've always, from quite a young age, had a bit of a fascination with language. Um, I think, you know, the fact that it's, um, you know, a uniquely human trait, the fact that our kind of understandings of of how it works, it's just, it's fascinating, really, you know, down to knowing when it's our turn to talk within sort of a nanosecond. And how do we understand each other when you know, when for the most part, as a general rule, we don't actually say what we mean. So how are we able to kind of communicate with each other so effectively um, on all these kinds of questions? And sort of um, variation really fascinated me from a, quite a young age as well, whether that's variation based on geographical factors or on social factors. Um, I've always found that really intriguing. And English was a particular strong point of mine, particularly English language. So I naturally went on to do that at A-level. 
And then from there, went on to study at degree level. And then it was as an undergraduate, my interest in specifically in forensic linguistics was kind of um, peaked, if you like. And um, that's kind of led me down on the journey that I find myself on now. That is super interesting. So for us to understand what we're talking about. So what exactly is forensic linguistics? Because I remember that in my undergrad, uh, when we talked about, you know, what you can do with a degree in linguistics, because there are so many options, right? Languages are everywhere. We had a, a forensic linguist come to talk to us and she talked about forensic phonetics. So she talked about how she worked with the police to like work on audio tapes and everything. So what is forensic linguistics and what are the different subdisciplines in forensic linguistics? Well, actually, the question of what counts as forensic linguistics is actually quite a controversial one. If you look at the etymology of the word forensic, it's from the Latin forensi, meaning like of the forum. So it would imply that what forensic linguistics is, is when language is of the forum, of the court, in public, basically. So wherever a question of language comes up, and is applicable in a case that's being heard in a courtroom, that is your sort of prototypical forensic linguistics. And a lot of people would say that it's restricted to that, but I'm certainly much more of the um, opinion that it's, it's, it's quite a bit broader than that, actually, and that it's where language or the study of language intersects with questions of law or of crime, of evidence, or whatever it might be. So it's not just when a question of language finds itself as a piece of evidence in, say, a criminal case. It could also be looking at, say, the language of the law, like of written legal text, so of kind of statutes and contracts and wills and so on and so forth, and also looking at the language of, of legal processes. So what happens in a courtroom when a barrister is cross-examining a witness, for example? How does it differ um, if they're cross-examining a sort of, if you like, lay witness, ordinary witness, as compared to when they do the same with an expert witness. And um, what can we say about the way that cross-examination differs from direct examination, for example, and those kinds of questions. Um, and also, in not just in the court, but in the police interview room. So we might be wanting to look at questions of how, when a witness is interviewed, their story of uh, a particular event that they've they've witnessed what are the processes involved in gaining that story from a witness and what are the processes in terms of how does a police interviewer kind of shape the witness's story in a way that's actually going to be useful for the investigation or for the court case if it, if it comes to that. But also it does um, cover sort of language as evidence. So there might be questions of a linguistic nature that come up in cases. It could be about, you know, did this particular suspect write this question, you know, this anonymous document. You've got cases where a young girl's gone missing and to all intents and purposes, it looks like she's run away because family members or friends have continued to receive uh, text messages from the missing person's phone. But then it's kind of transpired that actually the, there's something not quite right. There's been something about those messages that's kind of made the family members or the friends suspicious that actually the person authoring those text messages is not the person whose phone it is. And those kinds of questions are where forensic linguists have got involved and been able to look at the victim's historical style of texting, compare it to um, a suspect's historical style of texting and kind of look at these questioned texts, you know, the ones that, that have been flagged as suspicious in some way, and kind of, you know, drawn the conclusion that actually they're far more consistent with the style of this suspect than they are with 
the missing woman. And that's that was the case in a couple of high profile cases where linguistic evidence has featured um, in a criminal trial. But you've also got to think about all these kind of kind of other on the periphery kind of accounts. And I'm using scare quotes there as forensic linguistics. Thinking about kind of the language of online communities, you know, incel communities, various other sort of you know, extremist forums and so on, and looking at the language that's used there. And it's not necessarily going to lead to anything illegal, anything that is remotely going to get anywhere near a court of law. But there's a lot of us within the community that would argue that that also is a form of forensic linguistics because we're still looking at some intersection between language study and crime or justice or you know whatever it might be so so yeah there's those there's those of us that would advocate for forensic being used uh, in quite a broad church yeah your other question was about sort of subdisciplines so you mentioned forensic phonetics looking at what can we tell about the voice on a recording in terms of their geographical background are we able to compare that to a potentially a suspect that's in custody and comment on the possibility that what we've got is the same speaker then we might also want to consider the um, I mentioned authorship analysis, so you know there's obviously a lot of research underpinning that. Like how how unique are we in our in our use of language when we when we write, and sort of how can we kind of put that knowledge to use in answering those kinds of questions? And then yeah, also looking at the experiences of vulnerable groups such as children, such as victims of sexual crime, such as non-native speakers of English, and um, such as people who are suffering from particular disabilities and that kind of thing. It's huge. I mean, it's, I think a lot of people may think, well, it seems like quite a kind of niche thing, but it's actually pretty, pretty broad. Wow, that's super interesting, because I think that a lot of people, especially when they're like true crime fans, like I am, you consider all of these things that they go into like an investigation into like when you're looking into crime. But I don't think a lot of people consider that you actually need experts, right? Because if you just ask a random police officer, they might not be able to even recognize the differences, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is a sort of uh, a quite a hot debate as well, actually. So police officers, I mean, a good example would be where we've got examples of a kind of non-standard variety of English being used and the police might or the, or the prosecution, I should say, need somebody to interpret the meaning of a particular segment of whether that's of a recording or a text message or whatever it might be, uh, because it's not in standard English and they need somebody to interpret for the jury what's actually being said at that point. And it may well be that police officers, that some of the police officers involved in the investigation know what it says, but the question comes up whether it's that good enough evidence for a police officer, you know, the basis of their expertise being that they have kind of professional sort of familiarity with these particular groups. So they just know what that particular, you know, let's say slang. Don't particularly like the word slang, but, you know, that's... Uh, For lack of a better term, yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. They might be able to provide some kind of interpretation of it, but, yeah, it is, is that good enough? And, and in cases where they sort of think, well, maybe actually what's going to lend a lot more weight to this evidence is if we have an expert come and testify as to the meaning and then of course then the expertise is based on rigorous research rather than just sort of you know my lived experience my knowledge or whatever so it's, it's something that maybe comes up quite a bit um, as part of investigation but probably not as often as it should or something also not everyone has a knowledge on or is aware of and to end up working in forensic linguistics um what is your background what do you need as studies or as professional, as a career experience, 
what is necessary to work in, as a forensic, a forensic linguist? Well, I would definitely say, first off, that the priority should be, that the emphasis should be on the linguistics rather than on the forensic. Like, you, you need to be a good linguist before you can even hope to start kind of dabbling in forensic work. Forensic linguistics really is just an application of the knowledge that you get from formal study of linguistics, um, just as there are many other applications, language teaching or whatever it might be. It's just a context where you might put your skills to use. And so I quite frequently will have um, students email me and say, you know, could I, could I come and do work experience with you or do work shadowing or something? And I kind of have to um, you know, say, well, you know, if you came and shadowed me at work, I mean, if you want to take this pile of marking that's about as tall as I am and you want to go and sit in the corner and do that, be my guest. But I'm telling you, this is not the exciting kind of CSI <laughs> um, sort of job that perhaps everybody maybe sort of thinks of when they hear that term because they hear forensic and because they associate it with all these various other disciplines that they've, that they've sort of seen on the television that it sounds kind of really exciting but I'm afraid it's actually quite dull uh, for a lot of the time um, so yeah I mean focusing on um, an academic career so going from undergraduate to get a master's to, and then get a PhD to work on research projects as, a, as an RA until such a time as you are lucky enough to get yourself a full-time job in in academia um, the forensic linguistics will very much need to kind of play second fiddle to your academic career, essentially. So that's what, it, what I would say. And I'd also say that um, despite what I've just said about um, kind of kind of trying to put off people requesting work experience, I did manage to find some when I was a master's student, there was a full time forensic linguist working not far from where I live. So I did manage to get some um, experience with her, which was which is really invaluable, really. Um, but like I say, you need to be prepared that this is not a full-time job. Maybe at some point in the future, there will be the demand. There will be, it will be a well-known enough discipline that it could sustain people um, on a full-time basis. But then, you know, you'd, you'd need to make sure that even if that was the case, that they um, sort of kept abreast of all the latest developments in the research and, and so on, because that's really the important sort of element of it underpins all the work that we do so my suggestion would be just to focus on pursuing that goal of a career in academia and you if you're lucky the forensic um, stuff will kind of fall into place at the same time so in your case where do you work specifically and how do you get brought into an investigation in, like in your own personal experience Okay, well, um, I was lucky enough to work at Aston in what was then the Centre for Forensic Linguistics. It's now the Aston Institute for Forensic Linguistics. And I was fortunate enough to work there and to be to work alongside and to be mentored by some of the sort of top forensic linguists in the country, which was a really invaluable um, position to be in because this meant that I could I started off um, just sort of assisting on cases when, you know, when um, sort of my kind of superiors there were approached with a case then I'd sometimes be brought in to kind of see how it was done and to, to provide my input where I could and then that then led to me being listed on the National Crime Advisors database which um, is essentially a, a resource for uh, police force it were for investigators to kind of tap into if they require a particular type of expertise then they can find me um, 
through that. Um, but that obviously relies on them knowing what they're looking for. And I don't think necessarily um, forensic linguists would be just sort of tripping off their tongue when they think, like, I've got this particular question. Unfortunately, at the moment, there's no equivalent for defence teams. And so for kind of getting this sort of defence work, that's very much more reliant on kind of word of mouth and making sure that you just get your name out there as much as possible. Obviously, being affiliated with the centre, like Aston was, was very good because often people would approach the centre and then it would, it would come to me. And maintaining a web presence, which is something that I try to do, and just spreading the word as much as you possibly can. It's the, uh, it's the way forward, I think. So would you say that most police officers or most crime investigations, small crime investigations, they're not aware of the, who they can rely on? No, I don't think so. This is another another problem, actually, is that how, how do they know what good expertise is? But then also the jury, like, well, how does the jury know what, what's good expert evidence? This is a really important question, because how are they to know that my methods of looking at a dictionary, conducting something approaching a kind of online ethnography, conducting a little bit of corpus linguistics, how do they know that that's any better than someone who says, well, I know that that's what it means. Why would they know? It's just, you know, they, they, so they need to be guided. Yes, yeah, that's why we, we do this podcast, you know? No, yes, people good, know. good. <laughs> Had the word out. Excellent. So I hopefully it will get, it will get out there and yeah. It's not legislated for. There's not, nothing in statute that says expert evidence must be, you know, they must have a PhD mm. or, you know, and, and it's not for me to kind of come along and, and gatekeep who counts as an expert. But when it comes to certain fields, I think that because there's so much folk sort of understanding of what, of language and how it works and this kind of belief that if you're a native speaker of a language, then that's expertise enough. But we know that that's not the case, otherwise none of us would have studied linguistics and English language. I mean, we've, most of us have flown in aeroplanes, but we're not experts on the jet engine. And we certainly couldn't like, explain how yeah. it works to a, a jury of 12 people who are going to decide if someone's going to prison for the rest of their life or not. You know, That's a good example, yeah. No, exactly. They still think they can explain how the jet engine works. Yeah, and especially with language, because language, you know, everybody uses language and everybody thinks that that makes them an expert but yeah it really really doesn't exactly. but you already kind of touched upon um different like regional aspects of language and everything so as a forensic linguist is it useful or relevant to speak more than either one language or multiple dialects i would say that it's well, may well be useful. I think perhaps we can treat these as two sort of slightly different things. So, so sometimes a question will come to me about, so our client is a, a Polish speaker, for example, and claims that on this recording he is saying such and such, which means such and such, but it's being claimed that what he's saying is this other thing, which means this other thing. And in that instance, I would say this is not something that I can help with, but I do know a native Polish forensic linguist who is actually much better placed to be able to help you with this question. And I'll refer them to him. When it comes to, I think, the different varieties, it's not necessarily that you need to have a grasp or a knowledge, even a flimsy grasp on, on the variety. But what's important is that you understand the rules of that variety. You understand how variation works. You understand why variation happens. And you're able to kind of 
explain it in a way that a jury is going to understand. And so, I mean, I think that the case I've just talked about there is, is one example. It's not about the variety, it's about how varieties work. That's, so I think that's what's important, knowing how variation works, why it happens, being able to explain that, I think, is the, is the more important skill to have than actually having a kind of knowledge of the variety itself. That makes sense. Right. And that's also what you mentioned at the beginning, where the actual training in linguistics comes in, because as linguists, we know, you know, that variation happens and that it's normal and that we know like how it develops over time. So, yeah, that's where you can apply that knowledge over someone who says they are a native speaker of that variety. Variety, but... Well, we know that native speaker intuition is rubbish. That's why corpus linguistics exists. It's yeah. to show that actually, whatever native speakers might think about what they do, it's very, very rarely backed up when you look at the evidence. Yeah, just kind of just being able to describe the processes at work so that they can be understood. So you already mentioned the case of Polish, for example, right? So if that person is charged with a crime because of an audio recording where they're speaking Polish and it's claimed that they say one thing, but they say they said another thing. If someone is interrogated or investigated for a crime in their non-native language, so for that person, the non-native language would be English. English. Yes. So what, the, what are some of the complications that could arise in these situations? Because it's already quite a, they're under pressure, right? It's, it's a high stakes situation. It's intimidating as well. I know that like my English is, is good, but I think that if I were interrogated by the police, I don't know how proficient I would be. <laughs> Under pressure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so like you say, it's a very intimidating situation to be in anyway, regardless of whatever efforts interviewers, you know, whatever lengths they go to to try and make interviewees feel comfortable and at home. At the end of the day, one of you gets to go home and the other one may well not get to go home. So it doesn't, there's nothing you can really do to completely overcome that, that sort of power imbalance and the, 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 yeah, the stressful, intimidating nature of that situation. And when it comes to non-native speakers of, of English and where the decision might have been made to bring in an interpreter to, to try and kind of ease communication between interviewer and interviewee or in a court between the examining barrister and the witness or defendant, whatever they might be. A whole load of very kind of complex issues there with the, the role of the interpreter because probably the most um, obvious one is that I think the work of an interpreter is hugely undervalued by the legal system from investigation all the way through to trial. I think there's an assumption that if you speak two languages with a native-like kind of competence, then you can be an interpreter. And, you know, that's not the case, as we know, because you're not, interpreters are not just there to, you know, they're not a sort of a bot, they're not like a Google Translate, you know, where they can just kind of, you know, completely word for word translate one language into another. That's not how it works. That's not how language works anyway. And they're not just there to bridge the gap between two languages, but also between two cultures. So that can also sort of throw up a lot of complications and that's, that's a real skill that interpreters have developed and that, you know, they're qualified interpreters, that would be something that they've, that they've worked on. Um, and there's this idea as, of sort of pragmatic equivalence as well. So it, it, a good interpreter will make it so that whatever their client has just said has the same impact on hearers in the target language as it would have done in the source language. And that kind of kind of trying to, to sort of juggle that, as well as constantly being aware of possible 
impact of any misunderstanding. That's something they need to be constantly thinking about. If there's even a slight change in what a in what their client says, you know, in terms of the way it falls on the ears of people that that, that it's being interpreted for, um, or vice versa, they need to be you know hyper aware of what those potential misunderstandings might lead to, because obviously this is a very high stakes. Um, situation it's it's very important that, that everything is done accurately and all these skills to be doing all of this simultaneously is not simply being bilingual this is a set of skills and that's something that I don't think the legal system have really got to grips with and it's it does seem to be this assumption that oh well you know this person speaks that language so we'll just kind of they'll be fine just stick them in they'll just be this fine kind of objective conduit between that person and us and yeah there's no there's no worries and um, that's not the case and I think that's that's probably the biggest challenge that we need to overcome as far as kind of interpreter mediated um, exchanges go. How is research conducted in forensic linguistics? Do you work in a lab or are there laboratory-based studies or do you work simply at your university office? Right well I mean that very much depends on what the question is that, that we're looking at. I mean, as I sort of said at the beginning, we're actually talking about a pretty broad field. And if we're going to be looking at, for example, the the comprehensibility of, um, let's say, jury instructions. So at the end of a trial, the judge will give the jury their instructions and they all go off to a, a private room to deliberate. And there's been some work that was done back in the 90s over in, uh, in California about how kind of comprehensible those instructions actually were and if there were anything there that was kind of maybe causing problems for people in terms of their comprehension. All arose, incidentally, after the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. I think everyone was a bit like, how did that happen? Right, the jury clearly didn't understand like what they were supposed to be doing. So that's that was kind of a, a catalyst, if you like, for this work. That was a, a pretty big kind of project, the redrafting of the, the California jury instructions. But part the linguist that was involved in that was Peter Tiersma, sadly passed away now. But the, the work there would have been to do with sampling um, respondents and, and asking them to kind of look over the documents and to, to basically report on, on what they found and then sort of redrafting it and kind of kind of running the same sort of comprehensibility tests again and, and until they had something that was a, a bit more a bit more workable and a bit more understandable to your average, you know, you know, member of the public. But yeah, so I mean you talked about labs and I can't think of sort of labs in the traditional sense really playing much of a part, but we'd run experiments. What we tend to work with usually is very naturally occurring language data. And it might not be that it's natural in the sense of, well, in an ordinary sense of the word, kind of, you know, I'm thinking of like a police interview. It's not very natural at all. But I mean, it's, it's, that's the way that police interviews happen, regardless of whether or not a research, a linguistic researcher is going to come along afterwards and look at the recording and the transcript and kind of comment on, on the patterns of control, for example, that might be in there. So we tend to work mostly with naturally occurring um, data, but yeah, there are some some occasions that require um, a, a, a tighter sort of almost yeah experimental kind of approach. And I, th- I forgot asking this earlier, but so I've got in my mind this image of, oh, I'm yes, not sure if you yes. watch the TV show Una Bomber. Yeah. Yeah. Is, which is, I think is really good. That case obviously was fully based on linguistic evidence. Yes. Have you or anyone you know in the UK have solved a case fully based on linguistic evidence or just a supporting evidence? Well, 
That is a really good question. Yeah. So the Unabomber, Manhunt, the Netflix one, I think we're talking about. Is that right? The sort of drama. The FBI agent in that fits is based on Jim Fitzgerald, who is part of our friends linguistics community. And I've met him on several occasions. Um, And yeah, what happened in that case was the Unabomber, who I don't know if your listeners are going to know about this, but he basically sent sort of mail bombs to mostly people working at universities and airlines and that's where he got his his moniker unabomb but yeah he he kind of wrote this manifesto about industrial society and its future and he to the new york times and the washington post um you know print my manifesto and i'm going to stop sending mail bombs to people and maiming them and killing them and and the new i don't know if they both did or at least one of them did they complied with his request and they did a sort of double page spread of his manifesto and when that was published his I think it was his sister-in-law his brother's wife actually first spotted it and said this this is Ted this is your brother he's written this this is so obviously him and she could tell there was something she she couldn't put a finger on it you know she went to the FBI and then they conducted a bit a bit more of rigorous kind of analysis on the on the text and they compared it to some of his old he'd done a PhD back in the 70s and so there were a few essays knocking about in different places that they could compare it to and they established through looking at particular strings of words that yeah that he was the author I think they there were various kind of um, co-selection you know so these choices of which words to kind of put together and at the time obviously Google wasn't what it is now but that you know they put these strings of words through search engine and all the results that came back were various online versions of the Unabomber Manifesto. So it was just completely such a tiny, tiny chance that there was anybody else that possibly could have um, authored this manifesto because of these choices that he was making around particular lexical items. So I think the there's probably been quite a lot of dramatic license in that docudrama. I think there probably was other things i mean that led to them getting a search warrant for his cabin and that's where they found all the bomb making equipment and i would suggest that the bomb making equipment was probably more incriminating probably yeah stronger evidence than the than the manifesto and um, so i i don't know that it was completely based on linguistic evidence although that obviously is what um sort of sent them yeah exactly and yeah in this in sort of this country i don't think there have been any cases that have purely been based on the language because establishing that somebody is the author of a text i would never even say that as a conclusion because there are just too many unknowns we, there's not in existence a database with every single individual in the whole or every english speaking individual even in the in the whole world and exactly how they use language that doesn't exist and it's never going to exist obviously it's it's a ridiculous kind of concept so we're never going to be able to say with anything remotely like 100% certainty this person definitely wrote this letter because there's always the possibility that someone else has got similar makes similar choices has similar habits a similar style and so on so I would normally kind of express it on a sort of a semantic scale of like you know in my opinion, it is quite likely that they are the author. That's probably about as strong as I'd ever be able to go. And it puts me in mind really of one case. It was my first court case, actually, which was um, a blackmail case. And so these letters had been sent to various elderly people that lived on this particular housing estate saying, you know, we know what you did. If you don't put a load of money into a bag and hide it behind that shed then we're gonna tell everyone what you did or you know it was all this kind of sort of threatening and demanding money and the police had their suspect 
and they had searched her house and they'd recovered lots of documents. There were diaries and little letters and other sort of bits and bobs that she'd written. And so my job, they came to me and um, they asked, would I be able to compare these letters with these writings that they recovered from her house and comment on the possibility that she was the author? And there were lots of misspellings in the letters, which were also in the known documents, but they weren't particularly uncommon misspellings. There was things like neighbours, but spelled N-I-E-G-H-B-O-U-R-S. There were other things like she wrote, Instead of ourselves, she wrote ourselves. And so that was kind of in both the blackmail letters and in her known writings. And there were, yeah, various other kind of little things like that that, that were consistent between the two sets of documents. And so I kind of concluded that, you know, in my opinion, it seemed fairly likely that she was the author. And I went and testified in court. And the defence had also instructed an expert which um, I didn't find out until I got to court, was actually, had, had examined my PhD about three months previously, <laughs> Alison May now. So she was the opposing expert. And this was, uh, what they did in that case was actually got us in a room together to sort out what we agreed on and what we didn't agree on so that we could then present that to the judge and the judge could then save time that we would have spent each testifying. Instead, we gave a, a summary to, um, to the judge. But I, I did still testify though. So obviously the judge didn't think that he had enough to go on with sort of summary. But in that case, they also found in this woman's shed, wrapped up in a bin bag that only had her fingerprints on it, was the typewriter. And all typewriters are unique because of the particular indentations. The typewriter that was used to write these blackmail letters was in this bin bag in her shed. So, you know, I'm kind of thinking it doesn't really matter how she spelt neighbours or how many people on, you know, when I've Googled it, how many people on the internet have spelt neighbours that way. When it comes down to it, I think a typewriter in her shed is probably, probably what, what kind of clinched it. So, yeah, she was convicted. But, uh, I, and, you know, it's obviously the language had a role, but um, as in most cases, I think there's always other evidence. And I would always suggest that it's considered alongside. Well, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's just opening all of our eyes probably to all of these kinds of things that we don't consider in crime investigation because also we're not obviously not investigators <laughs> but that's that's very very eye-opening yeah so coming back to the whole because i already asked the question about the regional accents um i kind of want to come back to that because mm. when i was reading about like your previous work i came across your master's dissertation uh, which was titled, He Sounds Guilty, Regional Accents and Attributions of Guilt, which I found, like, the, just the title alone, I was like, whoa, whoa we need to talk about this. <laughs> because we, at Bilingualism Matters, we just recently, like last, I guess, a year ago, in the winter of 2020, we started a campaign called Accent Positivity, um, where all accents are beautiful, basically, and that you should kind of overcome your prejudices, right? So what kind of role do prejudices uh, regarding language and accents play in yes, that kind of yes. work? Because you kind of already hinted on it, but um, with that title of your master's dissertation, you know, he sounds guilty that, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, there are lots of um, stereotypes around regional accents and people think that they can deduce certain things about a person's character based on the way that they speak and so on. And um, yeah, you mentioned your project there and there's um, 
it's at Manchester, I think, as well, where Rob yes. Drummond is doing a lot of work around accentism and, and so on. So, yeah, so that work that I did for my master's was actually inspired by some work that was done in Australia, looking at how people judged speakers and I think he had a, a sort of Anglo-Australian speaker, an Asian-Australian speaker and an RP speaker. Yeah, so he ran some attitude tests in the sort of traditional vein of attitude tests, you know, like questions based on their status, affiliation and so on, but then also added in this kind of crime, you know, possibility that this person had committed particular crimes. And this was sort of kind of replicated in the UK, sort of attributions of guilt based on a Birmingham accent. And so what I did with my master's was kind of develop that a bit more. And I had a Midlands speaker, a Liverpool, quite sort of broad Scouse accent, a Cornish speaker and an RP speaker and had them doing, you know, this, what you would expect from an attitude test. You know, they would kind of talk about what they'd done that day. And this was played to a number of judges. I was interested in maybe interactions between these kind of scores that they gave for sort of status and affiliation and dynamism and so on, how that might interact with how guilty they perceived them to be of particular crimes and had different crime types as well. So I had sort of violence against a person, criminal damage, check fraud. And obviously when, when people are rating somebody as being quite high for things like intelligence, then they're also rating them as probably the most likely to have committed a check fraud because you have to be quite intelligent to carry out that kind of crime. So the RP speaker really got it in the neck for the check fraud, but was absolutely scot-free for violence against a person and for um, criminal damage and smashing up a car or something. And the poor Scouser obviously was just massively rated very highly, being very likely to have carried out this criminal damage. The, the Midlands speaker, he was kind of perceived as kind of pretty much too boring to have done any of them, really. <laughs> but poor, poor guy. And then uh, Cornish speaker, of course, salt of the earth, lovely. Would love, I'd love to go and have a pint with this guy, like really friendly, really down to earth, and absolutely no way that he did any of these. He's far too nice to have done any of these um, awful crimes. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was as expected, essentially. It was just getting it down, like, you know, rigorously investigating stereotypes around accents. And yeah, the findings were precisely what we'd, we'd expect. Really. Yeah. But that's, that doesn't make it less, that doesn't make it less tragic for the people. <laughs> oh, no, of course. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it's terrible. And you've got, and obviously you've got to think about the real world. And obviously this is research conditions, but yes, the real world ramifications of that are that well, juries are made up of these ordinary people that go to pubs and social clubs and whatever. And what's the impact that somebody's regional accent is actually going to have on their chances in the criminal justice system? And it's, yeah, it's really, really very worrying. Um, and for your PhD, you did a critical discourse analysis, which sounded really interesting as well. How does that work help people understand police work? Like the critical discourse analysis, how does that work help people understand police work and how does it help improve police investigations in the future or in the present? Yeah, um, that, that work I carried out because I sort of set out with a particular agenda, as, as most people that sort of engage critical discourse analysis do. It was very obvious to me that, you know, appallingly low conviction rates for rape, falling rate at which cases are just dropping out of the system before they even get to court. So talking about a 5% conviction rate, but most of these cases are not even getting that far. They're falling out for some reason before they get there. It's a hugely underreported crime. And then if it is reported, you've got huge numbers. The rate at which cases are dropping out is massive. 
Um, and then, you know, cases that get to court, we're looking at 5% conviction rate. So I was very interested in what happens in that really critical stage where the police have had a report and they conduct their investigation. What's going wrong there that means that so often finding that the CPS are deciding not to pursue a particular case. Um, and I think sort of from a critical perspective, you know, critical discourse analysis is concerned with power imbalances. It's concerned with kind of uncovering uncovering things that might be slightly hidden from view, but just sort of kind of demystifying and making it very obvious that these biases or these patterns of domination, these, these inequalities, they are there and, and they, they exist. And this is how this is how they're kind of played out and this is how they're maintained and so on. And so I was very interested to see, if there any evidence? Because we know that there's a huge mythology around sexual violence, who it happens to, who does it, what causes it, so on and so forth. So I sort of thought, well, I wonder if there's any evidence of those myths in the interview room. Is there anything in the talk of you know interviewers that kind of belies the existence of these beliefs, stereotypes, myths, whatever you might want to call them, kind of bubbling away under the surface somehow. And it's, you know, I think when I kind of started that work, I was very much thinking, you know, I want nothing less than complete institutional overhaul. The way they're doing it is absolutely awful. We absolutely need to overhaul the whole system. And as I kind of progressed doing that work and then in subsequent things that we've done afterwards, we've actually worked with police forces. I came around to the idea of thinking that actually this is something that we need to change from within. Like if we can get involved as soon as police officers come in to, to start doing this kind of work, getting in and tackling those kinds of beliefs really early on, that's the best chance that we've actually got of trying to get rid of the, the impact of those kinds of beliefs on the way that the interviews are conducted. Because there was evidence in some of these interviews of interviewers subscribing on some level to particular beliefs about victim blaming or about particular ways that people should respond to particular actions or there's particular ways that people should behave if they want to avoid this happening and so on. You know, those things were there. I mean, they weren't glaringly obvious. You wouldn't have an interviewer just sort of walking in and saying, oh, right, so were you wearing a short skirt? You know, this is, this, these are things that had to be picked out of what was actually being said. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be about the police officer's own individual beliefs. It could be more that they're sort of trying to prepare the case for further down the line, this is what people are going to be sort of questioning. So if we can sort of address these questions now, then that means that it's there, it's on the record. And so if later people have queries about why this happened or whatever, then it's all been dealt with. So there may be kind of preempting what they know, jurors or the questions that they might have further down the line. Yeah, so like I kind of mentioned there, we, this did feed into training. So we sort of took findings of our research on the road to a couple of different various police forces around the UK. And we actually took these findings out to trainee interviewers and tried to address some things around how interaction even work. We thought will be useful for interviewers to know. For example, you, the police officer, are very aware that that tape recorder and those cameras and everything in the room actually represent a much wider future use for this interaction. And this is not an awareness that the interviewee is necessarily going to have as far as they're concerned. They're sitting there and they're talking to you. So talking through things like audience design, for you, police officer, your audience is the CPS, your fellow officers, the jury, the judge, so on further down the line. But for the interviewee, there's you, there's just you, and that's that's all they're going to be aware of and just sort of kind of explaining and talking through those kinds of things with officers is, is uh, I think quite useful. 
the feedback we got suggested that it was going to be very useful for them anyway. And speaking of your work and then discourse around reporting rape, there's now a lot of talk, especially on social media, especially where, you know, the accounts that I follow, <laughs> where we need to change the language surrounding this, the whole discourse, where instead of saying she was raped, putting the blame on the victim because it's a passive, changing it to someone raped her. It's not her fault, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you've got like another step further. Yeah, the passivization is um, is our sort of nominalization. You know, a rape occurred, and it's just kind of. And then you get to the stage where it's absolutely completely impossible to ask. You know, who's doing this because it's not even portrayed as an action. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that of course doesn't help the the narrative, right? If you then get asked, yeah. if you only hear like, "Oh, you were raped. Yeah. You were raped. Yeah. You," you know, and then. And you were wearing a short skirt and you were out late and you were walking the streets alone. Yeah. That completely changes the entire discourse, right? And I don't think that people see how much language matters in this. Yeah, exactly. And I've got, we've got sort of got kind of um, examples from the data that, that I was looking at during my PhD there, where you're kind of thinking, you know, you're an investigating officer. And, and even if you've know, got the blinkers on and all you're bothered about is this investigation, then you're making the wrong choices. I mean, even if things that you're talking about, you know, the wider discourses around sexual violence, how harmful that is for victims and how harmful it is for justice. Um, even if you're just thinking about the investigation, you're still going about things the wrong way. So I had one where the victim had said that she'd, she said, so she was out with these two guys and, and they both came back to her house. One of them went on to rape her. And she said, they said to me, can we come back to your house? And I said, okay, fine. It's not very often I get company. And then the officer said, so you'd said they could come back to your house because you were enjoying the company. Now, firstly, she never said she was enjoying it. All she said was she didn't very often get company and she didn't have a problem with it. She's not really quite as strong as enjoying it. And secondly, it was their suggestion. So surely that should be the emphasis here that they suggested it. Is this not potentially evidence of premeditation that, that he actually always intended to come back and attack you instead it's it's just all the focus is on her like why she said yes she enjoys company and she said yes because as if that needs explaining of course you need to explain why you why you've invited these two men to come back to your house obviously we need a, an explanation for that well no actually i mean it's not obvious that you need to explain that kind of behavior it, and it's re really there. Were, I mean, it, what inspired me to start that work was, uh, uh, and I think it was 1986 that um, Panorama broadcast this fly on the wall documentary. They followed Thames Valley Police round for you know some time, documenting their day day to day work. And at one point, a detective came to the camera crew and said, "We've just had a woman come in reporting a rape. You really need to come and see how we do it." And, and he was really proud of how they went about like wheedling out weak cases basically and invited the camera crew in and this interview is just is just the most abysmal it's just a painful thing to watch oh. you've got three male officers interviewing this one woman who's clearly vulnerable they talk about how she's had mental health difficulties in the past and so on and how she you know she's known to them so that you know they, they know her and the questions they're asking her like the things that you would have to accept is true to make any kind of sense of the questions that they're asking so you know well she said, I didn't even know those guys. Well, you left the pub with them. You're a woman and I think you're not showing any emotion. Every so often you get a little tear. There's no emotion as if, you know, there's a standard way to react, to, to respond to having been raped. And she just wasn't fulfilling the, the expected criteria. Therefore, it was clearly an unstable case. And 
And they were really proud of it, but it did at least lead to public outcry when it was actually screened on BBC. There was this huge outcry that shouldn't be treating vulnerable women in this way. And that did lead to the Home Office actually rolling out these sort of recommendations. Some of the recommendations, you just think, duh, like what? You know, rape victims should be treated with tact and sensitivity. Well, really? Oh, wow. You know, thanks. I'm glad the Home Office is here to tell us that. And, you know, they should be examined by a female doctor where possible. There should be bespoke suites for actually doing this examination and for interviewing them. And it led to a lot of um, changes, uh, which is, is good. But, I mean, it's just it, absolutely shocking to watch. That's, that's what inspired me to kind of think, well, you know, how much has really changed? And, well, quite a lot has, to be fair. But, you know, there are still those beliefs still bubbling under the surface. So we're going to continue down the road of sensitive topics um, because you also did a lot of research on online sex offenses on minors in different online forums, right? This resulted in a book that you published last year in March 2020. And the book is called Language and Online Identities, the Undercover Policing of Internet Sexual Crime. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So the, the book is the product of, I think, altogether three funded projects that I worked on at Aston with Professor Tim Grant. And these were all sort of focused on the relationship between language and identity, but particularly in the context of online investigations against child sex offenders. And it all kind of arose from, I think Tim had a sort of a chance meeting with somebody who was in charge of a sort of a training unit, sort of training officers who were already trained as undercover officers, but for whatever reason couldn't continue in that role. So they were now training to become undercover online operatives, um, so undercover officers. So one of the tasks that these operatives regularly engage in, if you can imagine a scenario where a child has been identified as at risk, so say a parent or a guardian has discovered chats on their computer and established that they have been conversing with an adult online and there's some, some sexual content to the conversations. Uh, so that child will be removed to a place of safety, often against their, their will. They very often, they've been groomed to, to believe that they're in a, a relationship with this individual. And, but anyway, they're, they're removed to a place of safety. They obviously can't be put back into that dangerous situation, but the police do need to identify the person responsible. They need to effect an arrest of the person, but they need to keep other children safe. And so a police officer, an undercover officer, will take the place of the child and attempt to do a convincing enough impression of that child that the offender will be convinced by it. Um, they can set up a meeting under the guise of this, that you're coming to meet a child so that they could be arrested. Um, so that's the kind of context that we're working with. And we're thinking, what do these officers need to get right about a linguistic performance in order to successfully assume an alternative identity and so we were kind of looking at things that are quite obvious maybe to a lot of people which are that um, things around the spelling and and things like that where, you know if you're going to do an impression of somebody else that those are the sorts of things that you actually think about trying to manipulate in your own language to try and sound a bit more like them but it goes beyond that really for a lot of um, adult undercover officers it might feel very uncomfortable and they're supposed to be playing the role of a 14 year old girl they perhaps feel quite uncomfortable about the idea of introducing sexual topics. But if that's something that this little girl has done in the past, then they need to keep that up. It needs to be something that's consistent. Otherwise, it's going to be an immediate red flag to the perpetrator 
and it's going to blow their cover and they're going to lose that perpetrator who then is obviously free to continue abusing children. We also sort of talk around pragmatics. So is this somebody who has um, in the past issued a lot of orders or asked a lot of questions or, you know, how, how pragmatically, what type of a person was this child? And we really encouraged the officers that got involved in the training and really kind of encouraged them to think about beyond that kind of structural level, beyond things like spelling and punctuation and so on, and really to get a more like holistic idea of who linguistically, who this person is, who are you trying to be? So the work we did was um, looking at data from various sources. It started off looking at data from um, somebody that was operating a, a chat room on a, a now defunct platform called WinMX. And they were operating a, a chat room. The guy was called Timothy Cox. And from his remote farmhouse in Norfolk, he was operating this international chat room, which was completely centered on swapping abusive images and abusive videos of sexual abuse of children. And so they managed to arrest Cox, this operation, really very highly kind of polished operation to, to get him before he could get to the wipe button on his computer or whatever it was. They managed to get him. But obviously he was in contact with however many hundreds of child sex offenders around the world who all needed to be identified. There were all these children in the images and the videos that needed to be identified, needed to be rescued. So that was the first lot of data, really, was from that chat room and from sort of private messages between members of those chat rooms from undercover officers who infiltrated these rooms and posed as other offenders in order to kind of befriend the, the, the genuine offenders that were there. And then we also had data from sort of training scenarios. So as part of their training, these officers engage in sort of role play where one of their senior officers will play the part of the perpetrator and they have to play the part of themselves playing the part of the child, if that makes sense there putting themselves in that sort of operational context of doing the uh, identity assumption task. And they've got one of their senior officers in another part of the building who's role-playing the part of the perpetrator. So that also forms some of our data. We also had data from the dark web. So, I mean, it's not just horrible stuff on there. There's lots of reasons why you might want your online activities to be completely anonymous. You know, there's political activism on there. There's all kinds of, of things which, which are just not sort of, things that we're to be necessarily really concerned with but there's also a lot of stuff that we really really should be there's there's gun runners there's um, drug dealers and crucially there are people sharing images sharing media even just sharing stories of abusive acts that they've carried out and so on so that formed another part of the data that we looked at how people are using language how that kind of interacts with their identity if we're looking at sort of hierarchies within particular chat rooms for example with a particular role that someone has taken up in relation to kind of given community so yeah all that kind of dark web um, encrypted stuff forms me and then the experiments that i talked about earlier as well so yeah i mean lots of very varied data which i think we got some way towards kind of addressing the question of, of that relationship between language and identity and sort of what parts of our identity are sort of fixed and which are more sort of in flux and more kind of variable and very much open to, the, to depending on the situation, depending on the kind of particular interactional moment that we're engaged in at the time and so on. So we kind of tackle some of those questions in the book. Wow. And you've mentioned quite a lot of cases, the ones uh, dealt with in the book and then throughout the whole interview. So we were wondering if there's any specific case or experience that you would highlight from your career as a forensic linguist. 
Yes. Okay. So one case that I worked on was a case that was heard at Bristol Crown Court. And this was to do with, this was a murder case. And it was to do with the murder of uh, a young lad who was 21, Dalton Powell, his name was. And he was killed. He was stabbed outside of a party in Gloucester, sort of on the outskirts of Gloucester. And I was, I worked for the prosecution on this case. I was approached by the police. And what they had was audio recordings. And these were audio recordings that they themselves had, had made. They'd made them covertly because what had happened was they'd arrested six or seven suspects um, after this murder. They had them in custody. And so they were all obviously in separate cells. And what they wanted to do was to extend the time they could keep. Them. They wanted more time to, to question them all. And so each time they wanted an extension to the time they could keep them in custody, they needed to go to the, the local magistrate's court. And each time they did that, they took the suspects as they were then with them. And, you know, they couldn't afford for each of these suspects to have their own van. So they were transported in twos and threes between the police station and the magistrate's court. And the investigating officers thought, well, you know, they've been on their own in separate cells this whole time. This is going to be the first time that, you know, that they've seen each other since they, they were arrested. So there's there's strong potential that they're going to, to talk to each other about the case. And this could be really important evidence for us. So, again, with the permission of the judge, they installed covert audio recording devices in the backs of these vans. And they recorded the, the lads talking to each other. And when they recovered the recordings and listened to them, they thought that there's something strange going on here because some of it is in standard English and we can understand it fine, but there's nothing particularly kind of incriminating. They don't think there's not, not much substance to what they're saying there. But there are these other chunks that they're, where they're talking to each other very fluently and clearly understanding each other, that this is not standard English and it's not a language that we recognise. It seems like, and this was the way it was put to me by the officer that approached me, they are talking in code in these sections. So this required, on my part, very, very careful, close listening to the recordings. I had transcripts that the police had um, supplied, but there was lots missing. There were, there were, there, there were lots of inaccuracies and so on. So I um, sort of produced my own, my own transcription. And these audio recordings had these, like we say, they had these chunks that were on first listening pretty much indecipherable but then I realized that there was a particular sound that kept being repeated and I thought well maybe there's something in that that sound that we keep hearing peppered throughout the, these chunks of talk and it was a syllable egg the syllable was egg right so which I transcribed as like EYG that's how I would write it orthographically so what I did was on the transcript that I'd made kind of isolated all these eggs and thought, well, what does it look like without those in? And it looked like standard English when you removed all those syllables. So they would say, and there was some, um, I mean, there was quite a few kind of chunks. So one bit was, Wavy told me to go get in the way gip. I've gay got in the way gip. And then take the eggs out. And it's like, Wavy told me to get in the whip. So I've got in the whip. Whip being car, and a non-standard term for car. And then it goes on mm. with lots of eggs and he drove off and he ran over my leg, whatever. There's another bit where it said um, he had his stegab pre guest egg on. He had his stab proof vest on. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, right? Now, um, it's not my usual attire for a party, a stab proof vest, but this guy had gone wearing a stab proof vest. And this is obviously kind of some kind of indication that if you're not necessarily planned something to go down with knives at the, the party, but at least, it, you know, expected it. So this is obviously useful information for the case. And um, so I testified in that case and most of them were acquitted, but the one who had his stegapreg 
Vegas Dagon. He uh, he was he was convicted for murder and um, wow. sentenced to, to sentenced to life in prison. That's that's a quite clever thing to do, and it must have taken them quite a while to be to yeah. get that proficient, right? Well, this is the interesting thing I think because these lads had known each other since they were small. And oh, um, yeah. have you ever heard of um, Pig Latin? Yeah, yeah. It's a game that children yeah. play to, so that dinner lady can't tell that they're up to no good. Um, and I think it was a similar thing. It's like a variation oh, wow. on so it's egg Latin rather than pig Latin. Yeah. Um, but I think they've been speaking it since they were tiny little boys. And they, that so they, that's why they were so fluent and they, and they understood each other perfectly. Um, oh, but wow. obviously the police wow. officers were just... Yeah, no idea. It's quite interesting so. that just a single syllable can make that something unintelligible, right? That's wow. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even with the use of, I was even using sort of software, you know, to try oh, and yeah. kind of isolate the sounds. And I was thinking if I can actually see them visually, then maybe I'll be able to work out what the sounds are. But because obviously every decent um, language game as this is, the insertion of that syllable affects the quality of the sounds around it. So you can't necessarily even tell. Yeah. So there were still chunks that I couldn't, even though I knew the rule, there were still chunks that I couldn't actually say what it was that they were saying. Wow, that is super interesting, though. And good job. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, I think that's a highlight. Definitely yeah. that one. Working wow. it out was a real eureka moment. Yeah, I can imagine yeah. it must be so satisfying to be like, oh, finally. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, so um, we have one question left, and that where our guest is usually. Do you have anything to plug? Do you have any future projects lined up? Yeah, so the, well, the thing that I'm working on at the moment is my plenary address for the International Association of Forensic Linguistics. They're having their biennial conference. I've also got, currently got um, a funding bid in for um, a research network um, with the AHRC, a research network called Forensic Linguistics in the North, or FLIN, um, because there's obviously um, there's a big hub of forensic linguistics activity based around Aston University in Birmingham. Um, it's a bit of a hub in Cardiff as well, and there's not really anything going on further north. I mean, there are, but they're sort of dotted around, and there's not really a kind of organising structure to, to sort of bring all these people together. And we know, I, I know that there are there are linguists, um, but there are also people working in other related areas of academia. There are criminologists and cultural studies scholars and computer scientists and so on, who are all, you know, to to some. To some level, working in, in areas that are highly relevant to our field, and it's so it's an attempt to kind of bring them together, as well as students that are interested in the area, and as well as practitioners who can get something from us. So I've invited some um, defence lawyers to come along to some of our events to hopefully um, address some of the issues that I was talking about earlier, where questionable expertise is being admitted on behalf of prosecution, and I really want to sort of help defence teams to have um, something that they can pull out of the bag in response to those kinds of things and you know invited some people from national crime agency so fingers crossed that we'll get some funding to to do that so we could bring all these people together and learn from each other perfect fingers crossed yes definitely yeah perfect yeah that was that was it thank you so much nikki for introducing us to the world of forensic linguistics because that was super interesting quite intense but very interesting Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it does have its intense moment. But yeah, like I say, mostly marking stacks of papers taller than me. But you know, there we go. That's the truth. Of it. Yeah, that's that's the life of a lecturer in academia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But again, really, thank you. We really appreciate that you thank took the you. time and that you brought the world of forensic linguistics a little closer to us. Uh, thank you, Maria, for uh, joining today. Really appreciate it. 
Happy New Year. That was our first episode back. We hope you learned as much as we did, and we hope you agree that this is a highly interesting branch of linguistics that is underrepresented and underappreciated. So after this eye-opening episode to start off season two, make sure to subscribe to our social media channels and sign up to our newsletter, as I mentioned in the beginning. For every episode, you can find the transcription on our website as well, mlsdpodcast.com. And there's a link to projects, books, and people that have been mentioned in the episode as well. If we mention terms and linguistic jargon that you are not familiar with, you can find the definition in our glossary on the website. Yeah, and that was it. We'll hopefully welcome you back in two weeks. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and doey! Ciao! Wolf hour.